Wow. Needs a box of tissue up here, if I could, please. But yeah, this is, uh, we are moving to Tennessee in July, and uh, we're excited about that, but we are going to miss this group that we desperately love, and uh, we love all of you guys, and we love marriage, and so Heather and I are, we're excited about the future, but we're, we're, <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> so needless to say, it's bittersweet for us. <laughs> but as far as tonight goes, obviously it's April 12th, 2018. But what if you could go back exactly 106 years ago today to April 12th, 1912? Well, you might have by now been halfway across the North Atlantic on White Star's newest luxury liner on her maiden voyage, also known as the RMS Titanic. Beautiful new boat on her maiden voyage. You'd be sitting down to dinner right now, but on your way to dinner, you may have looked on the little marquee they have there and saw the, the uh, menu for the rest of the week. And you looked at Sunday night and you go, wow, April 14th looks really good for dinner. Let me just tell you what they were having on April 14th, 1912 for dinner. If you were fortunate enough to sit in first class, and first class tickets back then were almost $5,000 in 1912 each. So you and your wife could travel across the, that'd be a lot right now. 10 grand across the North Atlantic, first class. But this is what they're having for dinner. Main courses, you may have feasted on filet mignon. They were also serving lamb with mint sauce. I have no idea what that is, but it's, uh, you know, I've never had it before anyway. Uh, mint jelly. Is that what it is? Mint jelly. Um, roast duckling. Tastes like chicken, I'm guessing. They had something called, uh, for side dish, chateau potatoes. Don't know what that is, but it sounds really fancy. It's got the word chateau in it. And then for dessert, you had your choice of either Waldorf pudding. No idea what that is. Or chocolate and vanilla eclairs. If you didn't have the 10 grand, and so you're sitting in third class, where I would be, I don't mind that because I like their menu even better. They were dining on Irish stew, and that sounds good. That's stick-to-your-ribs type dinner. Loved it. They're also serving some stewed apricots. That doesn't really tickle my fancy, but whatever. And then they're having fresh bread and butter, and unless you're on some low-carb diet, which I never am, I love fresh bread and butter. <clears throat> but if you ate too much that night, you may want to turn in early because you're saying, oh, man, I ate way too much. I need to get to bed, and I'm going to get up early because I know this brand-new ship. They have a, a gymnasium. And they have a swimming pool. So I'm going to get up and work out. And I'm going to do some laps, work off some of this food. So you go to bed. You and your wife turn in about 11 o'clock. Or you and your husband turn in about 11 o'clock. Sound asleep. And about 11.40, you're, you're woken by a sudden jolt. Boom. What was that? Goes away just as soon as it comes. And so you're like, eh, don't worry about it. And you turn over and go back to bed. So about 30 minutes later, when you get up on your door, you go to the door. It's one of the crew members. Sending you and your wife life preservers, and he says, you need to get to the top deck of the ship. We're taking on water. And you go, what? You run to the top deck. Notice people being loaded onto lifeboats. And if you weren't one of the fortunate 710 people that made it onto a lifeboat, you, along with 1,500 others in the ship itself, went to her watery grave that night. Bad, bad situation. But if you're a survivor of one of those, of one of the, your loved ones that stayed on the boat, because there was a lot of that, families separated, women and children first, you'd be pretty upset about a week later when they're doing the inquiries into what happened that night, and you realize that this was a needless tragedy. And you go, what do you mean needless? 
It was needless in the sense that <laughs> April 14, 1912, the Titanic was warned six times about what they were heading into, into an ice field with large icebergs. Matter of fact, their, their last warning, the sixth warning, came at 11 o'clock, 40 minutes before they crashed. And it came from a, a ship in the area 10 miles away called the SS Californian. And the operator of the Californian told the operator of the Titanic, the radio operator, a guy named Jack Phillips, he said, hey, listen, you guys are headed into a major ice field in the middle of the night. There's icebergs ahead of you. You need to shut down. We've already shut down for the night. Wait until morning. There's better visibility. Jack Phillips, and I quote, said this to the operator of the Californian. He said, shut up, shut up. I'm busy. The operator of the Californian was so offended. He goes, well, then forget you, man. And he turns his radio off and he goes to bed which proved critical because later on when the Titanic was sinking, it tried to get a hold of the California for rescue and they had shut the radio off. Not able to get any help. Six warnings, all of them ignored. The largest, arguably the largest maritime disaster in world history and it all could have been avoided by heeding the warnings. And as tragic as that is, there's warnings in scripture that we're going to look at tonight. And the consequences of the Titanic were sad, but these warnings, if not heeded, are even more sad. So if you have your Bibles, if you could, turn to Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. It says this, And while some, some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, they're saying, hey, look at this, isn't this beautiful? He said, Jesus said, Quote, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And with that, let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, this timely message, God. We are so looking forward to all that you're going to speak to us about, and we just want to thank you in advance for the compassion that you've showed us and saving us for those of us here that are saved, God. For those that are not, God, we pray that you'd extend that same compassion to them. We know that you have in sending your son to die on, on their behalf and on our behalf for our sins, God, and so we pray that they would uh, appropriate that by uh, trusting in you by faith, God, and turning from their sins, repenting of their sins. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look again at verse 5. It says this. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. You're saying, what is this temple? Well, this temple was called Herod's Temple, 83 years in the making. This place was impressive. Look at the sheer size alone. They just recently done archaeological finds, 1,500 feet by 1,000 feet. So five football fields long by over three football fields long. A massive structure, massive, massive edifice. And like Pastor Mike said this weekend, the stone that they used was so brilliant on top of the uh, temple itself that from a distance, it looked like there was snow on top. Unfortunately, just like Jesus predicted here, not one stone being left upon another, the Roman general Titus came through in AD 70 and fulfilled this to a T and literally tore it down to the ground. And this wasn't Sadly, this wasn't the first time Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple. You're in Luke 21 right now. Going back to Luke 19, look at verse 41. Let's turn back a couple chapters. Luke 19, 
verse 41, he's not only predicted the, the destruction of the temple, he's also predicted the, the destruction of the entire city of Jerusalem. And it says this in, in verse 41 of Luke 19, it says, and when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Remember that. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, Jerusalem, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children, the people within you, and they will not leave one stone, there it is again, upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Verse 41, it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. I look up the Greek word because the, the New Testament written originally in Greek, the, the Greek word for wept is klio. It doesn't mean a gentle weeping like he's just, oh, tear flick, you know. It means you're weeping and wailing like when someone dies. We experienced this just this week at, at work. Sunday afternoon, we get a call for a drowning of a two-year-old. We get there as a community pool. There was at least 10 adults, but somebody thought, everybody thought somebody else was watching the baby, and the baby was under, they estimate, from five to eight minutes under the water. And we get there, and these parents and family members are wailing. Scoop the baby up, rush, rush her to the hospital, and then we're standing by the bedside, and the father, the dad, a grown man, I'm holding him in my arms like a little child and rubbing his back, and he can barely breathe. <laughs> Just crying over his little daughter. She's got tubes and everything coming out of her, wires all hooked up and everything. The good news, she's alive today. We transfer, transferred her to Miller's Children's Hospital in Long Beach. She's alive. We're hoping that she'll be out of the woods here soon. We don't know yet, but uh, that's what we're hoping for. But the point being, that's the kind of weeping that Jesus was doing, the same kind of weeping his father was doing over the loss of his daughter or the potential loss of his daughter. And you're thinking, well, why would Jesus cry so intensely over the fate of Jerusalem? I know he loved it. And I know that's bad, but that's a, man, it seems pretty intense. Well, you got to remember, he said what was going to happen. They're going to set up a barricade around her. They're going to surround her and hem her in on every side. And if you know anything about that type of warfare, it's basically victory by starvation. And that's really, really sad. The inhabitants, obviously, they can't go in. They can't go out of Jerusalem. They eventually use up all their food supply. Then a famine begins. It got so bad, you read about these sieges in the Old Testament, people resorted to eating their own children, eating their infants. This is real. This isn't Aesop fable stuff. This really happened to these people. Let me just read you something from Josephus, the Jewish historian, regarding the siege by Titus and the Romans. He said this, quote, All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine. And the streets of the city were full of the dead bodies of the elderly, the children also. The young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with a famine, bloated, and they fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. For a time, the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When Titus, the Roman general, on doing his rounds along the valleys, he saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them. He gave a groan, spreading out his hands to heaven. He called God to witness that this was not his doing. Well, technically it was his doing be held accountable for that. But the point being, you can see with something like that why Jesus would weep convulsively over the fate of Jerusalem, knowing that that was coming. Can you imagine as a parent, your little two-year-old or four-year-old, like, Daddy, is there any food today? No, not today, bud. Sorry, man. And then the next day, Dad, can we eat? Is it time for breakfast? I don't have any breakfast, son. Third day, Dad. And they eventually, you watch your child waste away and eventually die in your arms. You watch your wife die. You watch your elderly parents die. And then you, if <laughs> you're not so lucky, you die. 
And you go, okay, well, I can see how he'd be upset over there. And that makes sense because I think about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I've always been taught. And when I picture him, I think about long flowing hair and a white robe and a butterfly on his shoulder. And that makes sense. He's the God of the New Testament after all, and he's a good guy. But the God of the Old Testament, I've heard about him too. And he's an entirely different character. I've heard he's angry. I heard he's vengeful. It's almost like he takes a perverse pleasure in destroying people. Heard all about him. If you've heard that, first off, I want to clear something up. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. There's not two different gods. You have God the Father and God the Son, but it's the same God. And if you have that common misconception about how angry and how mean the God of the Old Testament is, let me clear that up for you. I want to give you a couple of examples, Old Testament examples. First, let's talk about Jonah. Everybody remember Jonah? Remember him, right? Jonah sent to the capital city of Assyria, a place called Nineveh. Audience participation, Ninevites, good guys or bad guys? Bad guys, really bad guys. Matter of fact, God described him, described him as exceedingly wicked. Let me tell you one of the things they did to their enemies. When they captured an enemy, a lot of times they would entomb them alive. They would build a brick structure around them, just their body, the bricks around them and on top so that they would suffocate and starve to death. That's, that's the tip of the iceberg. Pardon the pun with a Titanic thing, but it was the tip of the iceberg. That they would do this kind of stuff to people. And God has to twice send a reluctant servant Jonah, to warn Nineveh to repent or to be destroyed. What I love, what Jonah says, it says the people of Nineveh, it says they, quote, believed God. These wicked people believed God, turned from their sin, from the king all the way down. And I want to show you both God's response to that, to their repentance, and Jonah's response. Uh, you don't have to look it up. I'll just read it to you. It starts in Jonah 3 and goes into Jonah 4. God's response says this. It says, when God saw what they did, what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That doesn't sound like an angry, vengeful God to me. We do that with our children. Hey, stop that behavior or there's going to be consequences. And then they stop, and you don't follow through the consequence. You relent from the consequence. That makes sense. Sounds like a good father, a good parent. God's compared oftentimes to a great father, right? Our father who art in heaven. But contrast that with Jonah's response. When he saw that the Ninevites repented, it says this, and I quote this too, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why I ran away. That's why you had to send a great fish to swallow me. He said, for I knew that you're a gracious God, and you're merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew you wouldn't destroy these people. And to me, that reminds me a lot of 2 Peter 3, 9 that says, God's not willing that any should perish, including the Ninevites, but that all should come to repentance. And they did. And he relented. I like to say it rhymes. You know, they repented, God relented. So it's a great thing for the Ninevites. But that's not the first time God showed compassion toward wicked people in the Old Testament. Also audience participation. Everybody remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Good guys or bad guys? Really bad guys. We still talk about sodomy and sodomite. It's a bad thing, right? Turn back to Genesis 18. Everybody turn over to Genesis 18 because I want us to lay our eyes on this passage. Genesis 18, first book of the Old Testament, first book of the Bible. We'll start in verse 22. Genesis 18, 22. Yeah, they're, they're headed for the same fate as the Ninevites. God's going to wipe them out because of their evil. And let's, let's see this conversation between God and Abraham. And it goes like this. Verse 22, it says, So the men turned from there. They went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So they're one-on-one -on -one now. 
And Abraham drew near and he said to God, he said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it, God, from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, do what is right? And the Lord said, okay, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. A lot of scholars think there were as many as 200,000 people in the city of Sodom at that point. He said, it'll spare it if there's 50 righteous. Keep reading. Verse 27. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will, they're bargaining now. They're negotiating. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. 45 righteous people. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. God answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I'll speak again. But this one more time, this is my final offer. Suppose 10 are found there, 10 righteous people out of at least 200,000. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. And you go, well, I don't know how much that's about the compassion of God. It seems like the one that's compassionate is Abraham. Matter of fact, at the top of the passage, the heading says Abraham intercedes for Sodom. Who do you think put that on Abraham's heart? The Bible says that it's God who works in us both to will, to want to do, and then to do of his good pleasure. Who's more compassionate, Abraham or God? Ezekiel 33, 11, I'll just read it to you. He says, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but they would turn from their ways and live. That's God's desire. So for us tonight, by way of application, when it comes to having compassion on lost people, who do you most closely identify with, Jonah or Abraham? We've seen Abraham, we just mentioned him, compassionate. He's an intercessor. He prays for people. He loves people. Look at Jonah, not compassionate. Actually invited the judgment of God and was disappointed when it didn't come. And for us, whether it's at our workplace, our neighborhood, our kids' little league team, our kids' school, mom's group, do you pray for those people there? Or do you hope, although you never admit it, especially here in church, you do hope that God kind of judges them in some way because after all, they deserve it, the stuff that they do. And if we're being real honest, you think, man, if they end up in hell, well, that's on them. It's not God's heart. We've seen God's heart. Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. We've seen Abraham's heart. We've seen Jonah's heart. Hopefully you've been able to examine your own heart. But now I want to look at Jesus' heart. I put it up here on the screen. This is Matthew 9, 35 and 36. Speaking of Jesus, I love this. It says, and when Jesus, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And here it is. And when he saw the crowds... He was angry and could not wait to judge them. You read that there in verse 36? When he saw the crowds, he what? He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm sure there were some people in this audience, the same people that later on would say, crucify him, crucify him. And he has compassion on them. You see people in your sphere of influence like that, people who are like sheep without a shepherd, 
No one to lead them. No one to comfort them. No Psalm 23 going on in their life. If you find yourself tonight being less compassionate toward the lost than you should be, and you're saying to yourself, maybe, you know, I want to be compassionate, but you haven't seen the people at my work, for example. You haven't seen the stuff that they do. You don't see the way they thumb their nose at God. And uh, it makes it hard to have compassion, if I'm being perfectly honest. Well, if you feel that way, we all have at times, I know, there's a remedy for that in Scripture. And Compass Bible Church, so we're going to turn to some Scriptures tonight. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. I'm sure you've seen this passage many times, but hopefully you'll see it in a new light tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9. <clears throat> Paul's talking to Corinthian believers, right? To other Christians. And he says this in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, that guy at your workplace, that guy at your, that gal in your, your mom's group, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be going to heaven if they stay in their current condition. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. You know anybody like that? Nor idolaters. Nor adulterers. You know anybody cheating on their husband or their wife? Nor men who practice homosexuality. That sin's certainly not in vogue right now, but it still is in God's economy. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to heaven in that condition. And here's where the compassion comes in. Verse 11, it says, And such were some of you. That was us. Maybe not all of these sins, but we practice at least one of them. I can guarantee you that. Continuing verse 11, but you were washed. You were sanctified. That means set apart for God. You were justified, made right before a holy God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. None of us was born right with God. You had to be born again. And the same God that had mercy on us wants to have mercy on the lost people that you know. Think about it. Somebody had compassion on you enough to tell you about Christ, to invite you to church at least so that you could hear the gospel taught from Pastor Mike, Pastor Ben, or one of our leaders here at church. So I put it this way. Number one on our outline, we need to see people through Jesus' eyes. We need to see people through Jesus' eyes, their compassionate eyes. But that compassion should lead us to become that ambassador that Christ wants us to be. When was the last time that compassion led you to share the gospel with a coworker, neighbor, a relative. I'm not talking shoving it down your throat. I'm talking about doing like Peter said, with gentleness and respect, but doing it, looking for opportunities, creating opportunities to share with those people that you love, that you are having compassion on. That's what true compassion looks like. Amen? I want to address, I want to, now I want to address the object of our compassion. The lost. And in a group this size, we've been doing ministry long enough to know in a group this size, there's people in here that are lost. And you're saying, am I lost? What do you mean by lost? By lost, it means someone that isn't yet a Christian. They're not born again, like we just mentioned. They haven't repented of their sins and placed their trust in Christ. They might, you might be a churchgoer. You might love hanging around Christians. It's good and seem like nice people. But you yourself have never had that, that, that moment of, of, of repenting of your sin and placing your trust in Christ. The Bible says you're lost, so I want to talk to you tonight. So turn back to our passage in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 7. This is the passage that we originally started with tonight. Luke 21, verse 7. 
It says, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. And here it is, but the end will not be at once. And then you go, okay, well, the end's not at once, so I got time then, right? I looked up the original language, it says the end will not be immediately. And although it won't happen, the end won't happen immediately, there will be an end. And he goes on for the rest of chapter 21 talking about what that end's going to look like. There will be an end. Back to our Titanic analogy. When it struck the iceberg at 1140, it didn't sink immediately. It wasn't by, like, by 1141, it was underwater. It took two hours and 40 minutes for the Titanic to sink, but it did sink. And I've got bad news. This world is sinking. And if you don't believe me, let me just read you 1 John 2.17. It says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires. My question is tonight, do you believe that? That the world is passing away? Or at the very least, do you believe in spite of your relative youth, because mostly young people in here, in spite of your relative youth, do you believe that you're passing away? The statistics on death are still staggering. One out of every one person dies. And right now you're thinking, wow, thanks for the message. Glad I came tonight. This is encouraging. Great. And it would be bad news if God didn't provide the proverbial lifeboat. But he has. His name is Jesus. Let me just read you this. Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation. There's a lifeboat in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Speaking of the, speaking of the Titanic and lifeboats, let me tell you this little factoid. Uh, lifeboat 7 on the starboard side of the Titanic, it was the first boat launched that night by First Officer Murdoch and Fifth Officer Lowe. It had a capacity of 65 people. You know how many people left on that lifeboat? 28. How sad. Nobody took it serious. Nobody thought the boat was really sinking. I read that in my studying of the Titanic, I read that Murdoch and Lowe, they were practically begging people to board. And it says this in the, in the history of it. It says, but the people were reluctant. They were begging the passengers to be saved. Speaking of begging people to be saved, look up here on the screen. Look at, I put 2 Corinthians 5.20 up here. Look at this. It says, Therefore, we as believers are ambassadors for Christ, spokesmen for him. God is making his appeal through us to non-believers. We implore you, Mr. and Mrs. Non-believer, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. You know, like when you're in a fight with your wife, you have to be reconciled, but every single time, one, you're not one right and one wrong, you're usually both a little bit culpable. Well, in this one, God's 100% right and you're 100% wrong, and yet he's trying to reconcile you. And it says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The word for implore means to literally to beg. You say, yeah, we're begging you to get right with God. But it says on behalf of Christ. It's actually Christ that's doing the begging. And not to sound irreverent, it's as he was on the, the deck of the Titanic on a knee, begging you to get into a lifeboat, begging you to be saved. We had this happen in, uh, in our family um, with Heather, one of her friends who wasn't a Christian, Heather had both shared the gospel with her. Like I said, didn't shove it down her throat, did it with gentleness and respect, but did it. And then she had loved on her in real practical ways over a number of years. Finally, this gal came to Heather and, and, and said this to her. She said, uh, all you seem to care about is my walk with the Lord. All you care about is my salvation. And that wasn't true. 
that was Heather's top priority was to see her friends saved. But I watched her. I'm not just saying it because she's my wife. I watched her for years practically love on this gal. And of course she shared with her because she loved her. But the girl eventually, like Jack Phillips, the radio operator on the Titanic, eventually essentially said, shut up, shut up, I'm busy, and went about her life. Until August of last year, when she was at the gym working out, a real fit gal, she's at the gym working out, started getting some severe headaches. What's this all about? Eventually started vomiting at the gym. Had a seizure. They rushed her to the emergency room at Mission Hospital. And in less than a week, she was dead from a brain bleed at age 49. Heather was begging her to get right with God because she loved her. If you're not a believer here tonight, Who's that ambassador that God sent into your life to beg you to get right with God? Is it your husband? Is it your spouse? Your wife? Is it one of your parents? They've been begging you for 15, 20 years to get right with God. And you're saying, well, I'm going to church. That's great. Coming to church is great. But they're, they're not talking about coming to church. They're talking about getting saved. Is it a grandparent? Is it a small group leader in here? Maybe a mentor? Maybe a friend? They're, he's using them as ambassadors in your life, but it's really, like I said, you were doing it on behalf of him. It's as if he were saying, please get right with me. Please, I'm begging you. One of the people that Officer Murdoch and Officer Lowe were, were begging to get into a lifeboat was a man by the name of John Jacob Astor. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's a unique character. Matter of fact, he was the richest passenger on the ship that night. Richest guy on the boat. Matter of fact, if you've ever been to the town of Astoria, Oregon, it's named after his family, John Jacob Astor. And he stood on the deck of the Titanic with an opportunity, probably because of his status, to get on one of the lifeboats, even though it was women and children first. And he was a man, but he's a rich man. He stood on the deck of the Titanic, and he watched others boarding lifeboats, and he said this, and I quote, eh, we're safer on board the ship than in that little boat. He chose to remain on board the Titanic. He became one of its 1,517 victims at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. John Jacob Astor perished needlessly. Plenty of room on the lifeboats. I mentioned the one leaving with 28 people. That was lifeboat seven. Lifeboat one left that night with 12 people on board. Capacity of 65. He miscalculated the fact that the lifeboat was his only hope of being saved. When it comes to your eternal salvation, don't make the same mistake. God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I put it this way. Number two on our outline, you need to realize Christ is your only hope of salvation. Christ is your only hope of salvation. He's the only lifeboat, as it were, that, that God sent. There's no helicopter coming. There's no airplane. There's no other ship. The Bible says in, 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 in John, it says this, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's just me. Do something I've never done before. I want to invite my wife to come on up. Heather, if you could come on up here. <clears throat> As Ryan mentioned, uh, this is a bittersweet night for us. We're excited about what God's doing in our life and in our move to Tennessee, uh, the great state of Tennessee, I should say. But we're also sad because we've been, uh, oh, we, we've been uh, 
involved in this ministry since its inception for 12 years now. Working side by side with Ryan and Kiara Holly, we dearly love, with, with uh, Pastor Elliot and, and Pastor Ben and, and, and Holly, and it's been a blessing. And so something that's, the reason we love this ministry is because we love marriage, because we know God loves marriage. We're not naive. We know not every marriage, single marriage is thriving. And we know many are, but not all of them are. That's why we named this ministry Thrive, because God doesn't want you to survive your marriage. He doesn't want you to be roommates. He wants you to thrive in your marriage. So I got a couple verses I want to leave you with, we want to leave you with tonight that are near and dear to our heart. First, if we could put Mark chapter 10 up there. It says this, Mark 10, 7 through 9. Jesus was talking. This is what Jesus said. These letters would be in red. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife. You've done that. You're in a marriage group, so we know you've done that. And the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Secondly, we, we know that there's not a lot of things that the Bible says that God hates. But one, we know that he does hate. And we'll put it up here on the screen, Malachi 2.16. I hate divorce, says the Lord. God hates it. You know why he hates divorce? Because he loves you. He loves your spouse. He realizes, think about Ephesians chapter 5. It's a representation of Christ and his bride, the church. How tragic that we allow that to be separated and torn asunder, misrepresenting God and, and, and his bride, the church. We don't want that. So what we want to do as a couple, we want to pray for you guys. We want to pray for strong marriages. We want to pray for those that, of you that are lost, that you'd get saved. Those that are saved, that you'd be strengthened, that you'd be encouraged, that you'd be set apart, sanctified for God. You'd grow in your sanctification. So let's all bow now. We'll, we want to pray for you guys. Hey, God, thank you so much uh, for these last 12 years in Thrive, God. Thanks for the opportunity to come alongside great couples over the years, God. And we've seen so many couples that are thriving in their marriages, and we give you glory for that and give you credit and honor for that. But at the same time, God, we realize that not every couple's thriving, and, and in many ways, it's a, a hospital environment, and that's okay. That's what we're here for, to minister to people that are hurting. That's what you were all about. And God, we just pray that you continue to use your word in people's life to bring healing to them individually and in their marriages and their relationships. You'd use other people, other believers to come alongside them and walk with them. Use your Holy Spirit to convict them when they're wrong. And you'd, use, you'd encourage them as well, God. No one here, we'd get the word divorce out of our vocabulary. We wouldn't throw it around when we're in arguments, when we're in fights. It wouldn't even be an option. We're going to stick this out like we said in our wedding vows, God, till death do us part. We pray that for every couple here. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. And we love you. Enjoy your time in your small group tonight. <clears throat>